It's good to be with you on this balmy December night. The cold front didn't come through soon enough for this to feel very Christmassy. I told Richie earlier while he was setting up sound that I thought about doing this in jams, but I didn't feel like that would be appropriate. And then he made me feel old by asking what jams were. <laughs> they are long shorts for those of you too young to remember them. But we're here. Some of you are fanning yourselves. Some of you are hot and a little bit sweaty. That's okay. We're here to consider the incarnation and to consider how we celebrate Christmas individually and as families and as a church. And this year our series is Advent. Is it a cultural feast or is it a cultural fast? And I want to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of the rationale behind the series. So all of this will be true for some of you. Some of it will be true for all of you. But we run across several different extremes out in the world and in the church when it comes to Christmas and traditions and celebrating them. Not just in the church, but in the world at large, you run across people who want to downplay Christmas's religious overtones. They want to emphasize more of a generic benevolence time carved out for eating and shopping, parties and ugly sweaters. Uh, You find people on the other end of the spectrum who want to protect all of the religious import of Christmas and fight to keep Christ in Christmas. And those two groups clash often. And then you find another group all together who want to say that Christmas never really was Christian. And you will find people like this in the church and outside of the church who want to say that Christmas is really just the co-opting, the rebranding of pagan holidays, uh, that it grows out of some Roman holiday like Saturnalia or something like that. Uh, And there's nothing really Christian about it, so we should just dispense with all of it. The trees just come from holdovers in Druid worship. Let's have none of it. Let's just go about our business all through December. Let's not break our stride in our preaching. Let's not change our schedules. Let's not decorate our houses. Let's not give gifts. No tacky sweaters for me on principle. Um, And so you have people all over the map, and you have people who feel very principled and don't want to give any attention to it, and you have people who feel guilty about it but give in because they don't want to be too weird, and you have people who give in for the sake of their children, and their children want gifts like everyone else, but they feel some obligation to pause for station identification on Christmas morning. It feels a little bit like in the middle of Sesame Street when you turn to your kid and say, Honey, we took out a second mortgage on the house. We liquidated your college fund to get you everything Amazon had to offer. But we want to remind you that this extravagant gift giving is brought to you by the number seven and the letter Q and your Messiah. And then you open your gifts and you move on about your day. And there's sort of a guilty, we're supposed to remember enough, but really these two things are entirely divorced from each other. And so the idea for this series grew out of that gamut and a discussion uh, that I think that started with Brian Welch and John Berger. And so they thought it would be helpful, and we've talked about it and thought it would be helpful for all of us to consider our Christmas traditions and our practices, uh, both the ones that we inherit religiously and the ones that we inherit from the broader culture, and spend a little time thinking about how to practice those things Christianly. How do we enjoy those things in a way that points us to the coming of Jesus in his first advent? How do we enjoy those things in ways that point us to his second advent, his return for us, and honor him in the process? How do we worship 
in the midst of all of these traditions and practices. And so tonight, as a test case, I want to use the questions of Christmas's origin uh, and how we came, not the idea of the Incarnation, but how did we come to actually celebrate Jesus and the birth in the stable on December 25th? How did we end up with Christmas on our calendar where it is? Take those questions and use those a little bit as a template as we move forward to think more broadly about our cultural Christmas traditions and practices going forward. And so that will raise some questions for some that you may have never considered and don't care about, quite frankly. Is Christmas even acceptable? Is it Christian to celebrate Christmas because we don't find the Apostle Paul commanding the Corinthians to stop for Christmas? Is it acceptable? Where did it come from? And then, coming out of those two things, where do we find our place living with it, or more appropriately, living in it? Because we live in a culture, we live in a church, and a tradition that does celebrate the Incarnation rightfully, and at times, wrongfully. So, I thought I would give us a little bit to chew on very briefly. I'm going to give you a little bit of, of history. I am not sad that Brian, or I'm not glad that Brian Franklin is sick for his sake, but I feel a great deal of relief that Steve Bagby is leaving the country, and Brian Franklin, the people with PhDs in history, are not here while I cover historical topics. So you can bear with me and just assume that I'm an authority and don't check any of this with them. This is the best that I could do. Uh, But many of you are aware that the Puritans outlawed Christmas celebration in Massachusetts early on in America's history. And so a lot of us have heard arguments. Some of us in this room may have pointed to that, actually, and said, I'm not going to celebrate Christmas because it's unreformed. The Reformers must not have liked Christmas. The Puritans certainly didn't. They outlawed it. I'm going to outlaw it in my house. Um, But Calvin actually wrote letters in Geneva in 1555 because it had been banned there to explain to people that it wasn't his idea and he wasn't for banning Christmas. He was all for Christmas. He was not the Scrooge that took it away from them, so to speak. And so he advocated celebrating Christmas with Christian joy and moderation and focus on Christ and the Incarnation. And so that is all, because Brian Franklin and Steve Bagby are not here, that is all the history I'm going to give you on whether or not it is appropriate to celebrate Christmas. My take is yes. What I want to spend time on is how we inherited the date of Christmas, how we celebrate it where we do in December and how that might actually be instructive for us as we think about the way that we celebrate a number of Christmas traditions. Uh, A thousand years before Calvin wrote his letter, actually about 1,100 years before Calvin wrote his letters uh, on Christmas, Augustine cites December 25th as the traditional date. By the time of his writing, it was considered traditional and just taken for granted that Christmas is celebrated on the 25th and the birth of Jesus is recognized as having that date. Not that they knew that empirically, um, but that was just the accepted date for it, and people didn't argue over that. Around the same time, Ambrose of Milan and and John Chrysostom in the East uh, are also aware of December 25th, and they argue for it 
And this is the part that gets tricky for some of us. They argue for it in spite of the fact that there are pagan holidays they're aware of that share the same date. And so they, it's not news to them that there are pagans celebrating other things, other things that may even have similar themes to Christmas carols that we're used to hearing and Christmas uh, favorites, favorite Christmas ideas and notions for us. It's not news to them that these things exist and that they even share the day. Long before that happened, Irenaeus argued, Irenaeus wrote around 200, so 200 years after the birth of, birth of Christ, he argued that Christ suffered on March 25th and he was conceived on the same day that he suffered. That's a whole other discussion that we can have another time. Um, the same day of the year, sorry. Um, and that his conception on the 25th of March leads you to December 25th for his birth. And he marks that as the date, not to be venerated with festivals and celebrations, but the date to mark Christ leaving the womb and entering the rest of creation. Um, when you get into questions of which came first, pagan celebrations on the 25th or the point at which the church started actually celebrating Christ's birth on the 25th. You can go back and forth and it becomes a little bit of a chicken and egg type argument because you're piecing together things from a number of writings. There's not a clear winner. I know that four or five of you are going to find me afterwards with your take on what the clear winner is and I'll be happy to have those discussions later. Um, But What I want to focus on is the church's posture toward celebrating the Incarnation on a specific day, knowing that the pagan world around them either had celebrations that were coincidentally on that day, or maybe had celebrations that predated our celebratory festivals on that day, and how they took these traditions and used them. They took a posture of subversion. And that makes people really uncomfortable because it sounds dishonest. It sounds like Christmas isn't really Christian. These things are mythical in some sense. But that's not what was going on. And that's what, I'm, that's what I'd like to argue we do with some of the traditions we've inherited. Um, As Christ entered creation, he submitted himself to a culture, and he didn't do it uncritically. He didn't do it passively. He actually did it subversively often, and subversive uh, for the purpose of redeeming people inside of it. So when you think about subversion, we normally think of people like one of my favorite characters on TV, Uh, one of my lighter favorite characters, Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation, who works in the Parks Department. He's a public official in a government office, and he hates government. He hates bureaucracy. He holds this office for the express purpose of making it as inefficient as possible so he can undo the government. He would like to see the Parks Department privatized, owned by corporations. You want to climb a tree? Pay a dollar. You want to look at a pony? Pay a quarter. That's his dream, and so he lives subversively by inhabiting this government structure so that he can undermine it from within. 
But there's another sequence for Ron when he inhabits a space to be subversive for the purpose of redemption. He goes to a Halloween party at his friend's home. Andy and April have thrown a Halloween party. It's a great party if you haven't seen the episode. And Ron shows up in his pirate costume. He's a man of no nonsense. He's always a pirate for Halloween because why would you have more than one costume? That's foolishness. And so he comes in. He's a pirate. He goes to wash his hands in the bathroom, and the sink is leaking. And he tells Andy, your faucet leaks. And he says, well, I stuck a sock up there yesterday. I don't know what the problem is. And Ron takes it on himself to subvert all of the brokenness in the house. He is going to inhabit one room after the other, and find the things that are broken in order to fix them quietly, not because Andy has asked him to, not even because Andy sees anything wrong with it. In fact, Andy is happy that his house works this way. One of the things that Ron brings to his attention is the exposed wire in the shower. And Andy says, that's our shock wire. Don't touch it while you're showering. But Andy likes this arrangement, and Ron inhabits the space to quietly and subversively fix the brokenness in Andy's house for Andy's own good. That's actually what we see the church in the early medieval period through the, through the late medieval period doing with Christian traditions, or I'm sorry, Christmas traditions and traditions around the Christmas season from other cultures. They inhabit these traditions and they take them for themselves, not just because Christians like to party, not because Christians live uncritically in the world, but because a lot of these festivals actually point to something better than the pagans have realized themselves. They hold out hopes that the pagan myths have not fulfilled for them. They hold out views and perspectives of brokenness in the world that need to be overcome, and they've celebrated some made-up deity, and the Christians say, Jesus actually is the answer for this, and he's even the answer for this in some of the ways you've imagined this other God. One of the most important and one of the often quoted is the birth of the unconquerable Son, It was celebrated on December 25th. I won't get into more calendar nerdiness for you. At the time it was instituted, December 24th was the winter solstice, the 24th and 25th. The 24th was always believed to be the shortest day of the year, the year, or the day of the year, rather, that the sun was present the least. It was the darkest day. And the 25th was the first day on the calendar where they celebrated the sun was actually making a comeback. The sun had not been conquered. And so on the 25th, they celebrated the birth of the unconquerable sun. If you want to think about Christian themes that actually speak to this better than a pagan myth, think about John's prologue to his gospel, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a hope that darkness wouldn't win out, that light would break into the world and conquer the darkness slowly and progressively, celebrated every year. And the church took that and said, 
There actually is an unconquerable sun. There actually is light that breaks into the darkness and overcomes it, that dispels it slowly and progressively and powerfully, but you've missed it. And the church's discussion of that does come after Irenaeus and others have already put the date of Jesus' birth at the 25th of December. I'm not arguing that that's the origin of putting it on the calendar there, but actually turning it into a festival, saying we need to inhabit a pagan festival, but we need to do it hopefully and redeemingly, subversively. That's what the church did with it. And so the church took, as they went into pagan cultures and lands that had this tradition, and they said, this is the unconquerable son. This, as you hear in Malachi 4, is the son of righteousness that rises over you with healing in its wings. Chrysostom wrote, for instance, Our Lord, too, is born in the month of December, The pagans call it the birthday of the unconquered one. Who indeed is so unconquered as our Lord? Or if they say it's the birthday of the Son, Jesus is the Son of Righteousness, alluding to Malachi 4. In his commentary on the Psalms, Ambrose wrote addressing pagan cultures that had this celebration about the legitimacy of the Christian celebration and the better celebration that Christians had because of the fulfillment in Christ. And he said this, Since we know that the sun shines everywhere, we can, can we doubt that the splendor of God's glory and the image of his being shines everywhere? He penetrates everything, even the soul, then illuminates it as with the brightness of eternal light. Here in that, the theme of entering something, inhabiting it, and overcoming it. But although his virtue is poured out among all, into all, and over all, since he was born of the virgin for the sake of all, both the good and the bad, just as he commands his son to rise over the righteous and the wicked, nevertheless he warms only those who come near to him. For just as people shut out the sun's brightness when they close the windows of their houses and choose to live in darkness, so those who turn their backs on the sun of righteousness cannot enjoy his splendor. Open your windows then so that your whole house shines with the brightness of this true sun. Open your eyes so that you can see the sun of righteousness rising over you. They weren't the first disciples to do this. I feel a little bit of anxiety arguing for something like this in front of you. I see glassy eyes as we've walked through enough nerdy details to lose many of you. I see skeptical looks as we've talked about enjoying pagan things and Christianizing them. John Chrysostom and Ambrose of Milan were not the first Christian worshipers to do this. Remember when Paul stood in Athens and he turned to the men there who loved to hear new and innovative things and he fed them what they wanted, something innovative, but he gave them something they needed. He gave them the truth of the gospel when he said, men of Athens, I perceive you're very religious, and you have an altar to an unknown God. I can tell you who that is. That's what the early church actually did with many traditions around them and the cultures they found themselves because 
Christianity started spreading not only in one language, not only in one culture, not only in one geographic region. As it spread through the earth, it started invading different cultures quietly, subversively, sometimes under persecution. But there was a quiet working into the culture and a reclaiming of things that were only actually found in Christ. And this is actually not just a strategy for missionaries. This is not just an innovative posture we can take so that we can enjoy some cultural things and not feel guilty about it. This is very incarnational. This is what Jesus did with creation in the incarnation. Think about the way Jesus is pictured in all of his glory in Revelation tall with gleaming white hair and fiery eyes and feet as hard as bronze and a sword that comes out of his mouth and a jailhouse tat that runs the length of his thigh and says, King of kings and Lord of lords. But he didn't enter the creation that way in his first advent. He didn't kick in the door to creation and announce himself He didn't come in and let all of his sovereignty show at once. He didn't give up his sovereignty. But he didn't demand that everyone bow to him at once in a magnificent and terrible display of glory. He came in quietly and humbly, I would argue subversively, by coming in a virgin's womb, entering in a dirty stable, living as a carpenter's son, Submitting himself to the religious system of the day, even with all of its brokenness, interacting with Pharisees and Sadducees, and sitting and dining with sinners, befriending drunkards, tax collectors, and lepers, and prostitutes, and still having the audacity to go into synagogues and preach from Isaiah and say, I'm the one Isaiah told you about. This prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. Oh yeah, and P.S., God doesn't just love the Jewish people, He loves Gentiles. He came in and confronted the religious elites. He came in and subverted brokenness, and then He submitted Himself to it when He submitted Himself to a broken trial and an execution under Roman authority. Also that He could undo the brokenness in the creation and the brokenness in us, and so He could conquer sin and death and hell. Christ was very subversive in the incarnation. Not just in creation at large, not just in the systems around us, but in us, actually. He does all of the same things for us as He comes in, both glorious and humble, and sovereign and submissive. He inhabited His own creation to subvert its brokenness for our good when we would not have asked for it. And He inhabits our lives in the Incarnation. He inhabits our humanity, the things that make us human. He inhabits them, and He overtakes them to fill them up with His grace and His justice and to make them what they should have been in the first place. All of our religious sympathies, our faith, our sense of justice, our right and wrong, our obedience, our worship, all of these things, even at their best, are weak, 
and stained by the curse. And Jesus comes in the incarnation to inhabit and subvert them so that he can remake us. Not to get rid of religious practice, not to get rid of faith or justice or obedience, not to undo worship, but to complete all of them in himself for us and then give them back to us as he fills them up and fills them out by the work of his Spirit. So we inherit traditions. We inherit traditions from the church, yes, and yes, we do inherit a number of traditions from all of the cultures where the church has planted itself, and that is not a bad thing. It's not to be engaged in uncritically, but it's not to be boycotted either. All of these things have, or some of these things rather, have complicated origins, and we want to encourage you to engage in them thoughtfully and joyfully and Christianly with Christian hope and Christian subversion. Not an uncritical gluttony, but not a boycott either. So as you decorate and shop and celebrate and worship and eat and party and, yes, wear tacky sweaters through the month of December, even on Christmas Day, there is joyful worship to be found in inhabiting those traditions with a touch of Christian subversive hope fixed on the incarnation with an eye to all that Jesus is, the better hope that he has for us than any of those things hold out to us in themselves. There's something downright incarnational about doing it that way. The eternal Word of God became flesh and He lived among us in celebration and joy and redemption. Amen. You join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending the Son into our world, not generically, not abstractly, but to inhabit it really and personally in a particular time and place and culture with full worship, full obedience, full joy and diligence to redeem us and to remake us. And so we ask that you would give him more of his life in our own time and place and culture. Not haphazardly, but not begrudgingly or guilted either. Would you give us real joy as we celebrate Christmas with its many traditions? Would you show us the places that Christ holds the best hope and the best news out to us? Let us enjoy these things, not for their own sake, but for the honor of Christ our Savior. We ask all these things in His name and by the Spirit. Amen.